Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Guess who got to take New Year's weekend off? Joan Esposito did. Good for her. I'm Tory Ryder, in for Joan. Thanks for hanging with me today. So much to talk about. Even as we speak, news is coming in. CNN's reporting that uh, Kevin McCarthy, House Republican aspiring leader, is inching closer to his goal of taking the chair formerly occupied by Nancy Pelosi. He's made a compromise. He's offered to reduce the number of votes it would take on the floor to bump him out of the speaker's chair. This guy, I mean, if you didn't know it before, this guy will like pretty much do anything. And if Marjorie Taylor Greene and her buddies asked him to just, you know, murder puppies from the speaker's desk, he would probably do it. I mean, he's I've ne- I, seldom have I seen. And so we're going to talk about things Republicans will do to get into office today. (laughs) And I know you know who I'm thinking of. Little embellishing resume action happening this week. We're going to we're going to talk about that. You probably want to know who I am if you haven't joined me here before. I'm Turi Ryder. That's Turi with a U. Ryder like the truck. You can find me on most of the socials. I don't do TikTok. But you can find me on his muskiness's service still I'm still hanging there I've I've got my thumb in the page Mastodon got the Facebook got the podcast you might like that and I'm in for Joan today so much to talk about how did are, are you a Southwest Airline flyer are you stuck somewhere listening to this as your phone like losing its charge nobody covered this angle and if you missed it somehow i don't know maybe you just kind of passed out under your christmas tree for the last week and a half but um the cold snap and the blizzard the the death dealing blizzard and all of the weather craziness that came through chicago we just got the cold we were promised snowmageddon and we got like I can sweep this off my sidewalk with a broom. But uh, the cold happened. Um, Southwest, and I just want to fully disclose here, I love Southwest. I love them so much I bought stock in them years ago. So just just so you know. But uh, today was supposed to be the day that they could fly their full schedule. So... If you were able to get where you were going today, please feel free to let me know how that's going for you. Um, Midway was where a lot of people got stranded. We had issued a come to our house if you get stuck at Midway offer to several people. Nobody took us up on it. I'm not sure why. People do strange things when they're stuck in bad weather at airports. But nobody covered that I could see. And I looked a lot of places. I didn't see any stories about the Charger Wars. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're stuck in the airport for a really long time and your phone or your laptop or your pad or the heaven help you, the thing your kids are going to watch to keep busy is running down. And some, we won't even use a name for him or her, has like four things plugged in, right? 
the outlet hog. You know who that person is. And you're, you're like, la, la, la. You're waving the cord around, kind of hinting. Eventually, you get desperate enough. You're like, excuse me, could I use one of these outlets? And they look at you. It's like they know they're never going to see you again, right? So they can just be any old kind of awful that they want. And they look at you and they say, I was here first or I'm using these. Yeah, we can see that. You're using like two or three or four of them or you've been using them for an hour and a half. I've been tempted to borrow other people's kids and use them as a weapon. Just take the kid and let the kid... You know, remove the tablet from the hand of the little kid and just let the kid set up a whale and wave the tablet and say, my kid, my kid can't watch whatever the kid thing is that they're watching because the tablet is running down. I'll do anything if I need to charge a device. Seriously, I will just about I'll go into a janitor's closet. I've been stuck in a lot of airports. I know some of the tricks. I have not yet accidentally on purpose spilled a cup of coffee on anybody, but I wouldn't put it past me. Nobody covered that angle. And you know, you know it had to have happened, right? If if Southwest canceled like, what, 30% of it? Thousands, thousands of flights they canceled. And people were stuck for days Some people do things that just make no sense. I saw one woman in a news story, and I swear this is what she said. We got a text that our flight had been delayed, and we couldn't reach anybody. So we just decided to go down to the airport and see what was happening. That was possibly the strangest sentence I've heard in weeks. You know it's chaos. You know nobody's going anywhere. Your flight... The thing that, that drives me the nuttiest when I fly, and I don't know if all the airlines do this, but the airline I fly will send you a text that your flight is delayed five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter at all because they can catch up five minutes, 10 minutes, a half an hour, and you still have to be there. You can't say, oh, you sent me this text that said that you were 45 minutes delayed, so I came 45 minutes later than I planned. What do you mean the plane has come and gone? It was a meltdown. I don't know how your holiday travel ended up, but today, today is the day that if you are a Southwest customer, apparently you can get where you're going. One of the reasons I brought this up to you today um, is that it's been heavily contrasted, the, the speechifying by the head of Southwest and the speechifying by some other corporate executives about taking responsibility and what that actually looks like. There's, there are a lot of corporate executives who will stand in front of a camera and say, I take, usually it's a guy, so I'm going to do my guy voice, I take full responsibility, which most of the time means nothing, nothing at all. But uh, the last time that an airline had a huge meltdown, if memory serves, was JetBlue. 
Which, by the way, a friend of mine pointed out should should really be like the Dairy Queen stand at the beach. It should only be open in the summer. Like, there's an airline that should just fly seasonally, in my opinion. Just, you know, a couple of flakes hit the runway because they had a snowmageddon where they kept, I don't even know, it was like six planes sitting on a runway for hours. And actually, they changed the law about that. They don't, they can't make you sit seat belted for hours on the runway. They have to turn the plane around apparently now. But the guy running JetBlue was, I believe, a Southwest executive. And he said that he was humiliated and felt awful. And I'm not quoting him accurately, but he he threw himself on the sword. He left the gig, pushed out or dismissed, not clear to me. But I would love to know what kind of corporate, what does corporate accountability look like to you? What should a company do when it screws up royally? Not just an airline. I mean, you want to hear the speech. We Coming up today, we're going to talk to our favorite, my personal favorite, uh, law professor David Levine about the alleged crypto fraudster Sam Bankman-Fried who has spent a lot of time against his attorney's wishes in front of cameras saying, oh, I'm responsible for these terrible mistakes. So, um, okay. So now what? What what do you do with that responsibility? What does corporate responsibility look like to you? Phone number here, 773-763-WCPT. That's the number you can call or text to join us. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful engineering person. I have all of these wonderful ways of reading what you send me and talking to you when you're ready. So um, you can do that. Although I'm not, should I be? Oh, okay. Never mind. I'm, I'm still settling it. I'm settling it. Kind of like one of those, you know, when, if you have a dog. Before before it sits down, it turns around three times. I'm in the process of turning around a few times just to nestle into Joan Esposito's chair here. Also coming up, excuse my cough. <clears throat> if you are in the new year looking at using some of the Biden allocated funds or policies to make it possible to buy yourself an electric vehicle or a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, are you, are you ready to, to pull the trigger on that? Are you ready to to head over to your local dealership and, and buy yourself an electric vehicle? Is this the right time to do that? We're going to hear from somebody you, you probably know well from listening to the station, Tom Appel. Also coming up in, in light of the, I hate to use the word woke or the cancel culture or all these buzzwords, but you know... That's how they're referred to in the wake of a whole bunch of controversy, uh, including one of my favorite comics, Dave Chappelle, about uh, politically correct comedy and what you can and cannot say from a stage with a microphone in the name of humor. We're going to talk to somebody who, who sometimes walks that fine line in a very unusual way. One of my favorite and most creative humorists coming up today, Phil Hendry. Also, what does opposition research really mean? 
if you have been watching the drip, drip, drip of the House of Representatives elect from New York, Republican, I almost hate to say, I don't even know if his name is real anymore, future Representative Santos of New York, if you've been following the investigation of uh, what appears to be at this point a completely, well, it really does look like an absolutely completely fabricated resume. I mean, it, if I if I got behind this microphone and I told you I was a NASCAR driver, that's about how accurate this guy's resume looks. I watched the Indy 500 once. That's as close as I've ever come to being a NASCAR driver. This guy, this guy did an amazing job <coughs> of coming up with a resume. I mean, he ought to. Here's the thing. At this point, Santos should get a, a, an honorary degree in creative writing. That's what he should get at this point. But I think I have to make a confession and I have to ask you a question before we talk with somebody who does opposition research who will be joining us during the show today. Have you ever embellished your resume? A little? A lot? Okay, it's time for me to confess. I write about this in my book, by the way. I write the whole story, but... When you start in radio, it's a little bit hard to get your first job if you've never had your first job. So I went to the Skokie Public Library, and they had a book there at this time because it wasn't, it was before the age of the internet. And the book listed all the radio stations in the country. Like, you know how when you're driving out in the country and you see an antenna and you go, I wonder if that's a radio station. Those radio stations. And I looked up a bunch of them that I thought, nobody's going to make up having worked in Rantoul, Illinois. Except me. I put those on my resume. That's what I, okay, I admit it. I had done a high school radio station and I had offered myself as an unpaid intern at a suburban Boston radio station. And that hadn't gone well because I figured out that I had been asked to be the unpaid intern not because of what I could do at the station, but because of what I could do on the arm of the program director at record company dinners. So that didn't last. And I needed a job, wanted a job in radio. So what do you do? If you're me, you go to the Skokie Public Library and you look up a bunch of radio stations that nobody would have made up working for. And that's what you put on your resume. And I'll tell you how that worked out in just a moment. You are listening to WCPT. Where I'm sorry to say, now that I've confessed this, facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Did that woman filling in for Joan Esposito just admit to having fabricated her first resume? Yes, she did. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito. It's 222. Glad you could be with us. Asking you whether you have uh, noticed any improvement if you're trying to fly this week. And uh, if you ever embellished your resume. Eduardo from the Southwest Side. Welcome. You are on WCPT. 
Yeah, Toria, I heard you when you were on uh, the other station. Oh, I've been on those other stations yeah. once or twice. Jake Harper, I'll just throw a name out who's not around anymore, not, not somebody active, but Jay Har- Jake uh, Harper, I don't know if you remember him. Well, let's move to your reason for calling today, which is neither yeah. of the radio, none of the radio stations I've ever worked for. <laughs> yeah, so I can confirm that the Southwest is back to business because they've been flying like one after the other because I work from home. But uh, thanks to the soundproof windows, uh, the noise is not so much. So you live near Midway? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I live in the neighborhood. I'm like uh, 10 minutes away. So, so they've been flying one after the other. And it's been quiet. Uh, before today's date, it's been quiet. But today, one after the other. Sounds like you're uh, like on an aircraft carrier. You, so you anticipated my question because I was going to ask had it been eerily quiet the last few days, and you're telling me that it's been like very quiet. Oh yeah, very quiet. I go, what is? Am I in midway or am I somewhere else? It's interesting when you get when you acclimate to the flight traffic coming and going. We didn't know when we bought our house that we were under the flight path for O'Hare, which is a little bit difficult if you're trying to be on the air or be live. You have to sort of like time what you're doing. But um, you do notice, I know I noticed during COVID when people weren't coming or going that it was eerily quiet. Um, did you notice like any kind of strange when, when you went out of your house, if you went out of your house, because it was horribly cold when the whole pile up of delays began did did you notice you know people just kind of driving in a fury or anything changed around the airport where you were no i didn't i didn't uh i didn't notice that um i mean everything was uh pretty much happening inside the airport i didn't see anything outside ah, because so. I, there were they were telling people like go find a motel room go find a, you know we'll we'll pay for it later and i wondered if if you would if you were stuck in midway and they said yeah yeah go get a hotel room we'll pay for it later would you believe that <laughs> no but i mean uh i'm glad uh in case i was i was thinking about flying for new year's eve but uh this is the good things about being in a in a neighborhood where you're close to the airport because you could just walk home. Oh yeah, that's a good point. That is a really good point. Well, thank you so much for calling. I appreciate it. It was thank good you. to speak Happy with New you. Year's, oh yeah, and to you too. Have a great New Year's. Let's go thank to. You all right, you're welcome. I'm working on. There we go. I think I need to get more more parts and buttons over here where I am. Uh, and you can, by the way, if you want to leave a message or, or a text message, that's a way to get hold of us. We're happy to do that. Um, here's, here's someone. Someone had the experience of the charging, um, the, the charging wars. Uh, I make sure to charge my phone, writes Andy, before I get to the airport. Like you, I scour the airport looking for an outlet to plug in. I have stood over a person silently holding a cord until they get uncomfortable enough to relinquish an outlet. Yes, Andy, man of my heart. Uh, the silent stare seems to do the trick. I so wish... I so wish that I had a good enough silent stare to make the true outlet hog relinquish. Sometimes, sometimes it works. Sometimes. Ron in Chicago is going to talk to us about resume embellishment. Hey, Ron, welcome. You're on WCPT. Yes, I never embellished my resume, but I know some people who did. And their trick is to put down company or companies that uh, 
I no longer, no longer in business, so there's no way to check. <laughs> ooh, ooh, that's a good one. I mean, if if Santos had said it was Lehman Brothers that he'd worked for. Right. Well, the New York Times, though, they've got a pretty good uh, database. They would find somebody, but it would have been a little harder to dig it up. You're absolutely right. See, this is the this is the kind of of I would never do this. Don't try this at home. This is the kind of advice that I love about Radio Ron because nobody really knows it's you, and you can tell us how to do anything we shouldn't do, and and a plausible deniability right down the line. Thanks so much, Ron. Good to hear from you. Great advice from Ron. If you're going to embellish your resume, what you want to do is pick a company that's out of business. Unless, of course, you're saying that you ran it. That would not be good. Yeah, if you want to embellish your resume. So, yeah, I I didn't give you the follow-up to my embellished radio resume with the little stations in Rantoul, Illinois. There is, there is a coda to this. Uh, every time I'd get a real radio job, I would chop off one of the jobs that I'd made up. And, I mean, I hadn't made up like pages and pages. I just made up enough jobs that somebody would let me in the door to to run the programming. I, I was the first person on my block to hear Jerry Falwell, probably. Or the that's what the radio station played most of the day. They They played religious tapes. <laughs> but they gave me the morning show, which, since it was a daytime radio station, could sometimes be a couple of hours and sometimes would be about 15 minutes because depended on when the sun rose and set. But every time I'd get a new job. So, so I had an interview for a job I really wanted, and now I'm several years into my career. And the general manager asks me how I got my start in radio. So I tell him, that I made up, like Santos, I made up a resume, except I wasn't trying to be the congressional representative from a part of New York City. I was just trying to play the, you know, polka music and the and the sermons at 11 a.m. It's different. You can't really hurt people doing that. You can't cause much havoc. I mean, I suppose you could offend the the polka folk. Apologies if you're a polka folk. But this general manager was horrified, horrified, I tell you. And he declined to hire me on the basis of the fact that I had honestly told him how I got my start in radio. If you want to know how that turned out, I I will leave you to my book. I'm not going to bother you with it now. It's 2.30. This is Joan Esposito's show in a moment. Is this the year you should get yourself an electric vehicle on WCPT, where facts matter? Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan today. Joan gets to have a New Year's weekend. Woohoo! I get the fun of sitting here with you, which I think I would trade a New Year's celebration to do for sure. And we are joined by someone who is going to answer a question you may be asking yourself. Is this the year I should try to buy some sort of electric vehicle? And joining us, 
someone you may be familiar with already from listening to this radio station. He is the publisher of the Consumer Guide to Automotive. I believe I'm saying that right, but he'll correct me if I'm wrong. Tom Appel, welcome to WCPT. Or I should say welcome back. Thank you. I should say thank you. We're good. <laughs> and did I get your title right? The Consumer Guide to Automotive? Is that right? It's just Consumer Guide Automotive. A Consumer Guide Automotive. Okay. Yeah. So you, more than most people, have been watching the evolution of the gas-powered combustion engine, and you likely have some thoughts about where we are with all of that. I do, yeah. And and as for whether or not this is the year for someone to jump in, there's a lot of qualifications on that, but it could be the year. And why do you think that this would be a good opportunity for people to go electric or hybrid electric? Up until very recently, um, there were hybrid, there were electric vehicles that were relatively low cost and high compromise and very expensive vehicles. But in the last 12 months, we've seen an influx, just a huge number of new electric vehicles show up that are more moderately priced, a lot more compelling in terms of the ownership experience. Um, and, and it just generally makes more sense now because the charging infrastructure has improved as well. Huh. So you can actually charge your car even if you live in an apartment building in most parts of most urban areas? Or do we have charging deserts? What does the environment look like in Chicago for people? In Chicago, it's pretty good. You're not going to find a lot deep into the city, unfortunately. And as a rule of thumb right now, unless you're adventurous, unless you're sort of an early adopter, I would not recommend going electric if you live in an apartment and can't arrange for charging at home. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're still going to have to charge the charging infrastructure, trust the charging infrastructure, and it's still weak. Um, along the interstates, it's great. But in cities or if you get to, to low population areas, things get dicey. Okay, you've just mentioned something that's really interesting to me, which is along the interstates. When this last cold wave hit, one of the cautions um, against driving was specifically directed at people with electric vehicles. And, and I'll bet you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, if we're talking about battery capacity degradation, that's a very real situation. And as the weather gets cold, you could lose as much of a third of your range. Wow. So if you should be aware of. And what are those the typical range? I was looking because I was hoping to do this this year. I mean, a good range is considered like anything over 200 miles on a charge, right? Generally, yeah. I'm, I'm right now as we're talking. I was working on a piece. I'm talking. Uh, I'm writing about the Kia Nero EV, which was redesigned for 2023. Mm-hmm. Small electric vehicle, relatively affordable. Range of 253 miles. But you would lose in a cold snap a third of that. Yes, and actually, when temperatures dropped, I tested this vehicle. It got down to about 30 degrees, and the mileage, the range dropped to 220 miles. So about a 15% drop as things got close to freezing. Uh huh. Can you, in layman's terms, so people can understand it easily, can you understand, can you make us understand why a cold battery doesn't work as well as a warmer battery? Yeah, it just has to do with the chemistry. And and lithium-ion chemistry, which is what's in most electric vehicles, kind of likes roughly the same temperatures that people do. So they operate best between, say, 40 degrees and 80 degrees. That's that's the comfort zone, and that's where you're going to see the best uh, range. Um, And then there's a lot of factors. If you keep your car in a garage that's heated Mm -hmm. and charged in there, Mm -hmm. you're not going to see much range degradation at all. If you charge it outside where it's cold and the car is outside in the cold, you're charging in the cold, you're going to see much more 
range degradation. That's so interesting. I have not heard that before because I would have just assumed that it's the weather where the car is running that makes a difference. But you're saying that it's the weather where the car charges, the temperature where the car charges that makes a difference. It does. As you hit the road, the batteries, the batteries. Um, pack, the battery pack itself, includes a thermal management system that ah. keeps the battery warm. So once you're running, you're in better shape. You will, you will experience some loss, but not as much loss as people who had let their car get fully cold. So interesting. So like basically, I'm going to use, I'm going to use an analogy that you may be completely unfamiliar with, but <laughs> I know that anyone who's had a baby in the last like 25 years knows what this is. There is something called a baby wipe warmer. <laughs> and and if you've ever had to diaper a kid in the middle of the night, you put that ice cold cloth on the baby and that baby is up for like six hours screaming. <laughs> but if you if you, all it is, it's basically like a heating pad or an electric blanket with some Velcro and it wraps around the box of baby wipes and you can get a baby right back to sleep. If the wipes are warm, they like it warm. Warm is comfortable. Babies and tropical fish like it at a certain warm temperature, which if you think about it, makes sense. I mean, you were just cooking them, right? So, and and frankly, if you got me up in the middle of the night and threw an ice cube down my nightgown, I would scream too. So you're telling me that basically these electric vehicles need a wiper warmer is what you're telling me for the battery. So if you charged now... I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you even further down the road of absurdity. Maybe I worked in Minnesota for a while, and the parking area was outside of the radio station, and so you could plug in a warming dipstick to your car. Every every space had an outlet where you could plug in this little thing that warmed the oil. Is uh-huh. it if you have an electric vehicle, can you buy like a, and you have to charge it outside? Can you buy like a little baby wipe warmer or a dipstick warmer equivalent so that you could just warm the battery and it would charge well? Is that a thing they make yet? No, but there is a digital equivalent. Most vehicles are available with apps that allow you to sort of preheat. If you're charging, if your vehicle is plugged in and it's outside and cold, you can, while it's charging, warm up the interior of the car and warm up different elements of the car, including the battery pack, which will help. So if you use the app and can program the time that you're going to use the vehicle, you can have it set and ready for you, and you can mitigate some of these losses. Oh, that is good to know. That See? Yeah. You're so useful here. Now... What about people like WCPT folk who love this station and want to buy American, buy Union American, support American labor? What about people like me who are like, well, I want to buy an American-made car, but right now I hate Elon Musk's guts. And on top of that, I'd really prefer my car be built with Union labor. What's out there for people like that? Most of the domestically produced vehicles are going to be produced by union labor. The vehicles themselves are, and it's looking increasingly like the battery packs will be produced by union labor, too. Uh, the union has approached General Motors about its joint venture battery packs uh, plants, which are, are joint ventures between General Motors and LG Chem, a South Korean company. Mm-hmm. And it looks like all four of those that GM is building will be union in the U.S. So General Motors products are good. Ford will probably be doing the same thing. It's um, 
trying to think of the name of the company it's working with, but it's it's also the batteries are all being produced by joint venture situations, and they will probably be union. This is good because when I first started this research about a year and a half ago in the middle of COVID, because what else are you going to do in the middle of COVID? Dream of living better than you were living, right? So the 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 vehicle that looked most interesting to me because I was already starting to hate Elon Musk at that point. Um, that's just my personal. You don't have to hate Elon Musk on my behalf. I just now I don't like him. But um, I, I looked at the uh, Mustang Mach-E, I think it was called, the SUV that uh-huh. they were building. It was an American car, union labor, but made in Mexico. And I thought to myself, why Why don't they just like just just over the border a little bit? Um, and so I kind of let it alone. And now it's really expensive and I still wouldn't buy it. But because it's expensive, what is the situation with parts and price and availability? What What's going on with all of that? Yeah, unfortunately for people looking to go electric in the near future, uh, the average transaction price on electric vehicles is higher than that for other new vehicles by a lot. It's about $60,000 worth it versus about $44,000. Now, part of that is that the vehicles that are available as electric vehicles skew towards the luxury side, so that's driving the price up as well. Um, but in terms of, of where they're built, there's a lot of things that are having to do with plant utilization and location near to, near, you know, tier three and tier two suppliers that have nothing to do with borders and more to just to do with logistics. Interesting. If you can hold on with us, I've got, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the rebates and also about our Illinois factory. And you know which one I'm talking about. Normal Illinois, I believe is Uh where it is in a moment. If you can speak to what the heck is going on with Rivian, I would really like to hear you talk about that. Would you hang on? Great. Yeah. It's Joan Esposito's show, Where Facts Matter. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan. Is next year your year to buy an electric vehicle? We're talking with Tom Appel. He is the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, and he will be with us in a moment again. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. WCPT, I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan Esposito, who, why not, is going to have a full New Year's weekend. And why shouldn't she? That woman works hard, bringing you all of the important issues, especially for those of us who are slightly left of center. We need her. So we need her rested and happy. And so here I am, Tori Ryder, in for Joan. We are discussing whether or not this is the year that you should consider getting an electric car if a new car is on your list of things to do this year. Um, and we do have a question for you in a moment. Well, why don't we start with Ike in Charleston, who has a question. Tom. Tom Appel is with us. He is the author of the Consumer Gu- of Consumer Guide Automotive. And Ike in Charleston, you're on with Turi and with, and with Tom. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Tori. Hey, Tom. Yeah, I, I've been following. I've, I've followed this technology for a long time now, and I'm more curious that the, the solid state battery uh, blade battery that they've come out with, if it's a little bit better as far as handling the cold. I know you get better range and it packs better power, but I also am kind of curious of what you see on the horizon. Uh, there's one that I've been watching, and it's called the nuclear diamond battery that they have real high hopes on. The guys at MIT have been working on it, and I think they broke through on it. 
Uh, well, let's. I tell you what, Ike. What do you think, Ike? Of, let's let yeah. him answer the question. <laughs> have you? Have you got? Do you want to know about yeah, that? What do you see on solid state? Okay, thank you very much, Ike. Appreciate it. Let's go back to Tom. Tom. Yeah, right now all batteries are lithium ion with a few that are lithium iron phosphate. Lithium iron phosphate is more popular in China, a little more sensitive to cold, but a lot less expensive. Those are the two technologies available now. If you buy an electric car, your car is going to have one of those, probably lithium ion. Lithium ion is the technology that will eventually become solid state. And that just means that the electrolytes in the battery are solid, and that means that they can be formed more easily into a smaller area, which reduces the size of the battery and hopefully the cost of the battery. But we've been pushing back the, re- the arrival date of this new technology, the solid-state technology. It seems like every time you ask someone, it's five years. Ten years ago, if you ask someone, it was five years away. Now it still seems like it's five years away. Oh, I think it's five like, to ten years away. Like people's um, retirement. I'm going to retire in five years. I'm going to retire in five years. I'm going to retire in five years. I got it. Okay, so if, so we, exactly should not, right. we should not be holding our breath for that. No. It's okay. going to be coming. It's definitely happening. There's definitely research, but the practical application seems to be a bit a bit off. Got it. Okay, let's go downstate and talk about what was supposed to be the pride of Illinois, the Rivian Motor Company building an electric SUV and an electric truck, and they had a partnership with Mercedes, and they were partially owned by Ford, and that just seems to kind of be disintegrating before our eyes. So what's the story? Yeah, the story there is complicated, and I don't think that the public knows all of the story, but they've had a really hard time with production and a really hard time with managing costs. So we know that that the stock has plunged this past year, so Wall Street has lost its faith in Rivian, but Amazon has not. Amazon uh, has has a standing order for 100,000 delivery trucks from Rivian, um, which are showing up. And if you look around Chicago, if you see an Amazon truck, and it has a full... Uh, a brake light that, that takes both sides of the truck and the roof of the truck from behind, you'll know it's an Amazon truck. They're, they're striking, they're hard to miss, and they are on the road. So Rivian has begun delivering those. It's the more, it's the higher profit pickup truck and SUV that they're having a hard time getting out the door. Um, well, so and, and let me stop you and ask you, a delivery truck is pretty much a bare bones thing. You don't need a lot of wing dongs on it. You just need it right. to stop, start, turn, go. So are you saying to me then that the, the delay for Rivian, our very own Illinois Motor Company, is that they can't get some of the luxury features, uh, source those, or w- what would be the reason? Well, I think some of the problem is, in fact, supply chain shortages. But additionally, I think they're just having a hard time ramping up. They're, this is a new company with a new factory. Well, not a new factory, but a factory that's new to them. Um, and, and they just they keep running into small problems that become bigger problems. What about the UAW, the Auto Workers Union, trying to unionize? And, and their big push has been that um, it's not a safe factory floor. That That's their public face. Is we want to unionize Rivian, Illinois' own motor builder. Um, but And the main reason that we need this union in there is because it's not safe for the workers. What, what have you heard about that? Uh, not much, and I wouldn't. I don't know that I could evaluate how safe the factory is. It's a relatively new factory. It was built in the 80s for Mitsubishi, um, and it shouldn't be too far out of whack. But that said, 
you know, changing, converting a factory from building small cars to building EVs could change everything. And I suppose if we can take Tesla as a model, uh, how you expect your workers to perform, how fast you expect them to work, um, all of those personnel and management issues can also be a factor in the safety of the factory floor, correct? They can be, and Tesla has managed to just display incredible uh, efficiency at its factories. The factory it has in California, Fremont, used to be a General Motors Toyota joint venture that I don't think ever built more than 300,000 cars a year. Now it's cranking out 500,000. So Tesla seems to know how to build a lot of cars very quickly. Not too many. Well, there are worker complaints, and I don't know how well we know uh, the depth of those. Well, let's let us let us look at Tesla because they are the people who really made the electric vehicle achievable, I, I, at least in the minds of most Americans. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, uh, ra- had my kids, raised my kids and lived within spitting distance of that factory in Fremont in Oakland. And uh, it is, I think now it has replaced the Tesla, the Volvo station wagon as the official pace car of Berkeley, California. <laughs> Uh, but um, the the early um, discontent, even with people who basically liked Tesla, was that their quality control was not. I mean, you you saw on the internet the pictures of like Home Depot parts and Tesla engines or Tesla vehicles. Have they have they managed to solve all of those problems? If you buy a Tesla, is it Tesla all the way through? Uh, the parts are generally Tesla. They, the, Tesla has, Elon Musk has always pressed things further than they probably should have been. They've built more cars than they probably should have at a, at a given time, but things always seem to work out in the end. Uh, the quality control issues have gotten better over time. But, for example, Tesla sells something they call full self-driving, F, uh, FSD, which is not full self-driving, but that's them pushing their luck. They're, they're, they're getting closer to an autonomous vehicle, so why not call the current vehicle autonomous? And that's wait, 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 wait. I've got an answer for that question. <laughs> because it's dangerous. Yes. Yes. It's very dangerous. Yes. And people still, I mean, are people still, did nobody, did the Tesla drivers of America still not get that memo that it is not really self-driving and you could wind up in trouble? Or are we still seeing, you know, these these horrible incidents unfold where people are like, well, I just thought I could play a game on my phone until I found that I had hit something. Yeah, it's very strange because Tesla seems to sort of wink and nod at the notion that the vehicles aren't full self-driving, and and they seem to encourage and then simultaneously discourage people from doing that. But YouTube is full of videos of people sleeping behind the wheel of a Tesla, which is obviously a terrible idea. Yes, it's a terrible idea, although, although... If you want to die in your sleep, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's uh, talk to and and then I, I also have to ask you about the hybrids, like the plug-in. It can run with a charge. It can the, the plug-in hybrid, I guess, is what it's called. It's got some yeah, acronym. Yeah, it makes it sound like you're spitting. <laughs> that's the that's the what they're called. not very nice. Let's go to Andy in Chicago Heights. Hey, Andy, welcome. You're on with Tom Appel and me, Tory Ryder. Hi, Tori. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having this conversation today. Um, I was wondering, um, I went to the dealership, uh, and they told me that there's a 15% markup on their hybrids. Do you, is that is that a, is that legit? 
the dealer, the dealership told you that because that's their markup, and that, that there's no universal truth to that. That's simply how much the dealership wants to get for that car. Ah. Dealerships in America determine the price of the car, not the manufacturer. So you are free to walk away from that deal or negotiate that deal with them. But there you go. There you go. I thank you, Andy, for your call. I think that's the the easiest question. I I almost could have answered that one, Tom. <laughs> I, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, well, the answer is, oh, really? We'll see about that. Um, yeah, that's the when, – when you get to the point in your negotiation, and I know this will shock you to know that I can do this, Tom. I start with the Costco price, and I work my way down from there. And I know that I've hit where I need to be when they say, you know, we could throw in floor mats, but that's about it. That's an excellent way to do that. That's, that's if all they've got important. to offer you, if all the last dealer that you show up at can offer you is a free oil change or a floor mat, you know you have scraped to the to the that that's yeah. as low as that's the limbo point. That's how low they can go. Um, that's good. Yeah, I, oh, I'm good. I have friends who take me car shopping with them because I'm vicious. I'm just well, you know what? I'm just because, and I do want to hear just a little bit about. The plug-in hybrid before before I tell you the end of my story. What's just quickly? What's the status of plug-in hybrid? Time, not time, good time, bad time. Uh, plug-in hybrids work very well. Uh, there's some great examples, including the um, the Toyota Rav4 Prime is a great example. The problem with plug-in hybrids is that people don't plug them in. There's research indicating this, and if you don't plug your hybrid your plug-in hybrid in, you have wasted money uh, because the vehicle is actually heavier heavier than a regular hybrid and costs more. Ah. You lose that advantage. Good to know. It's like me with diet books. You act, you can't just buy the diet book. You actually have to follow the yeah. program, right? Yeah. So um, my quick story. Um, I can say this because they don't exist anymore. Um, I have a vintage 1986 Supra, which I still drive, uh, not in the winter uh, because it's all engine. And the only way I drove it in the winter before was with like 60 bags of cat litter in the back. But on the day that I first went to buy that car, a bunch of salesmen uh, didn't get off the car to let me drive it. They said that girls drove the MR or the whatever it was, the MR2. MR2. Yeah, so I went over to a different car dealership and I bought the car and I drove it over there and I said, Hi, remember me? Yeah. They said girls usually liked to drive the smaller cars. And oh, well, Supra was a great car. I still have it and I still think so. And I'm trying to figure out if I can buy enough cemetery plots so they can actually bury me in it. That would be my goal. Tom, you've been a treasure. I thank you so much. And now I see why when I said that um, we wanted to know whether we could buy an electric vehicle this year. Every single person at WCPT said, you got to talk to Tom Appel. Thank you so much. Pleasure was mine. Thank you. All right. That's Tom Appel. He writes and publishes the Consumer Guide Automotive. We are WCPT. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan Esposito. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is Jonas Esposito's show. Joan has the weekend off. Happy New Year, Joan. Um, and I, Tory Ryder, am sitting in. Joining me, even, even if I didn't know him and love him, I would love him just because of his work. He is an entertainer and humorist in just about every medium and platform. You can hear his podcast, the Phil Hendry podcast, that's spelled H-E-N-D-R-I-E, because you're going to want to hear his podcast. 
He spent a long time in radio. You've heard his voice on TV. He's he's kind of like Chicken Man. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. And right now, he is joining me on WCPT to talk about the whether there's really such a thing as cancel culture when it comes to doing live performing comedy or comedy on other platforms or humor. Hi, Phil. Thanks for being with me. Hi, Tori. I love Let's having you with me. Together. Let's talk about our history together first. Okay. I, I'm just kidding. I, no, I wouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> well, it depends on how much of our history together you want to talk. I, I will say this. Phil Hendry is possibly the only human being in the world who can speak about my backside and have me not punch him in the face. All right. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> Thank you for being here. It's I just I just okay. love talking to you about anything. But I figured, and the, the reason one of the reasons I thought of you is you have managed to walk the fine line of humor with some really inventive ways of saying things that people may not be comfortable hearing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, where do you want to go? I was the first person that came to my mind is Dave Chappelle. Um, yes, Dave has a lot of power. He's got a lot of <clears throat> he has a lot of power, and what I mean by power, he has a lot of presence. He commands the presence of the media, and he's such a commanding personality that he can basically say, I'm going to do this, and here's why I'm doing it. And people give him a bit of a pass. Um, It's an interesting concept. You know, it's an interesting um, phenomenon. I don't have Dave Chappelle's power. (laughs) I got to watch what I do. So I think what you're alluding to, and I'm I'm sorry if I'm giving a big speech here. um, I love your speeches. Speech away. (laughs) Okay. Well, you see, it all started back at the farm. Okay, t- I changed my mind. Don't don't do that. When I started, I started doing my character voices. You're right. I was able to express uh, opinions <clears throat> through a character, but it wasn't my opinion. What I was doing with my characters, what I what I continue to do is, I present a type of person that exists. I make them very funny, obviously, and um, make them so realistic in my radio show particularly, that people wanted to react to them and talk to them, thinking they were real people. One example is, for instance, this is extremely offensive, um, but it was uh, designed to be. Uh, One of my characters was talking about the fact that um, some of these kids are a little slow, and so I have a special food that I feed them. I call it Mongo Chow. Now that's you know that I told you it was going to be offensive, and uh, and uh, well, why would you call it that? Well, just simply because of the fact that it's it's readily available in our supermarkets. You can feed it to your kid, and I don't know, try to make them smarter. Well, naturally, there's people calling and being completely outraged at this animal for saying the things that he's saying. Um, but there are people who, in our world, exist and live like that, and and are like that, express those opinions, mm-hmm. and they get they get gussied up, and they get a little lipstick put on the old pig as opposed to the characters that I do kind of, I try to present them in their real relief, you know? Yeah. I, th- it's, I, th- it's hard. I think one of the things that, that you do is with your characters, um, you point out that a lot of the worst of us comes from ignorance, really. Um, and, and so some of your characters are so self-righteous, self-righteously ignorant and funny doing it that yeah. you you can almost see where you can trace it you can trace it to its roots and then you start to see uh you start to see these views for what they are <laughs> i, I well, guess I, got a, I had a character who was um you know i find it very offensive 
<clears throat> I'm not doing these voices very well, by the way, but um, I find it extremely offensive. Uh, I got a coworker who's black, okay? And he beats me regularly at Scrabble, and uh, that's that's tough to take, you know. Why is that tough to take? Well, he's black, you know, beating me at Scrabble. You know, now, it's kind of funny, but at the same time, there's people who pay lip service to uh, the belief that we're all equal, but uh, when the push comes to shove, they they can't believe that certain people are getting to get in line with them, you know. That, that, that uh, I think what's happening in America right now is white people are reacting. A lot of white people react. In fact, that they're not at the front of the line anymore. That they have to kind of get in line with everybody else. Yeah, um, I, I think know. I told you my my worst marital moment was when my spouse um, had had a career setback, and he actually pointed out that he was middle aged, and I I was not a good spouse. I was so not a good spouse. I'm like, are you trying to oh. tell me that? Because of who you are, things are harder for you. You got bounced? Yeah, exactly. Really? Well, tell that to every woman, minority, a person with an accent. Really, tell, tell, figure out another way, buddy. So that's pretty much what I said. And he did, to his credit. He did. But, I mean, it's really interesting for he, to hear you say that you're pointing out that people are having to re refigure where they belong in the social hierarchy and your humor points that out too. It's true. I mean, and, and so, um, gosh, you know, I know Terry earlier, he said, do you have any tapes? God, I've got about <laughs> 50,000 hours of tape. I don't know, I wouldn't know where to go, but, um, we've had a lot of different, um, I've got a character named Bobby Dooley. She's a self-important <clears throat> self-righteous woman who says, um, she talks like this. Okay, and she says, um, we have our Christmas lights, and there's the blue and white ones, you know. Uh-huh. What are those? Well, they're the blue and white ones. They're the, um, the Jewish people? Yes. Yeah, and we would prefer that they take those down a little bit sooner than ours, because it's Christmas, you know. So, through her smiling face, he's expressing something that I think is pretty common, which is, oh, you're Jewish, that's Wonderful. That's nice. Um, do you mind if you stop being Jewish for a little bit so that we can get on with what we're doing here with Christmas? You know? <laughs> um, Gee, I've never seen that before in my life, Phil. That's never I happened thought, to me. I thought it, yeah, I thought I'd mention it to enlighten you. And uh, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, but you do. You do enlighten people. I think that you really that that is one of the reasons why your humor is so brilliant, because through these characters that if we know who they are, we can laugh at them. We also see ourselves and in ourselves things that might be unpleasant that we'd like to root out. So how how do you when you see people screaming at Chappelle, when you see people, you know, taking on other comedians and we know who they are talking about AIDS and HIV and does it just look to you like they're being too crude about it? Or what 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 do you think when you see their work? And we don't have to name names necessarily. It's hard. It's, it's really hard for me. Dave Chappelle. It's really hard for me, man. I think he's being stupid. I think his act when he veers into that area, is basically stupid. Um, and that's okay. You're allowed to be stupid. I guess there's an audience for stupid. Now we get into this area of, okay, but where do you close the door and say, no, Dave, you don't get to go here? It uh, doesn't look like there's, there's a lot of doors being closed on Dave Chappelle. 
because he's making people money and he's making the networks money and the advertisers apparently are not feeling the backlash enough to stay away from him. Whatever sponsorship money comes his way, I realize he's a, I, uh, mostly a performer, you know, for uh, commercial ticket sales purposes. So I think his act is dumb um, in areas. I think he's really, really funny. I think his impression of white people is fantastic, which leads me to another area. Um, Dave Chappelle and, and Richard Pryor did a fantastic impression of a white couple at a movie theater, just basically saying, oh, let's sit here, dear. There doesn't seem to be anybody disagreeable in this section. And it was really funny. And I, I, that was one of the funniest things, one of the first things I heard Richard Pryor do. So when I break in or when I broke into my ethnic accents, I had a character named Robert you know, who was a member of my staff. I had a, uh, a preacher named uh, uh, Pastor William Rennick. All of these are based on real people. Like Hosea Williams is a character that inspired Pastor William Rennick. One of our security guys, KFI, inspired Robert. I don't do stereotypes. But does Phil Henry get to veer into that area? I have to be mindful of my um, colleagues in the entertainment, black actors who've been shut out of jobs. Because literally, there have been white, white actors doing uh, black voices in voiceover. So I, I refrain from doing those voices out of respect for my colleagues of color. And because, you know what, man, I don't need to go there. I got a whole other bunch of places I can go uh, because I got too much respect for those guys. What Dave Chappelle is doing, he doesn't seem to think that there's a downside. I think eventually there will be for him. But I would not be in a position to advise him. Is there, is there any way that a person can speak to a com? I mean, you have to believe in your stuff. You have to believe in yourself. And I'm going to ask right. you to answer this in a second. But it, are there people? I mean, what's the best way to say to somebody, you're brilliant, you're funny, you're a genius. This is harmful. You shouldn't do that. And, and is that ever okay? So if you can hang on for a sec, I, I would love to know your thoughts sure. about how to get through to people when you think yeah, this is no, this is just no. Yeah. Uh, we are on WCPT 820. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan, you are hearing the many voices of one of the more brilliant humorists, in my opinion, anywhere. Phil Hendry, if you like what he sounds like, if you like his views, find his podcast, find it now. And his last name is spelled H-E-N-D-R-I-E, Phil Hendry, on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan, and with me, Phil Hendry, the wonderful humorist. You can hear him on your TV. You can hear him on his podcast. That's where I would start if I were you. Go find him online. He's... And I don't just say this about anybody. He's a genius. He truly, truly is. Phil, thanks for hanging on. Um, Happy to. Talking about comedy on the edge. And and when you get to say to somebody, like, just we're just going to use Chappelle, because as you pointed out, he's huge. He can take it. When and how can you say to somebody who's worked on, presumably put in time and thought on their routine, um, that's... You know, that's too much. That's too far. And how do you get through to them? I guess I would file this under just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way of saying it, because transgender people are not politically powerful right now. It's taken a lot of guts, a lot of guts for them to step out and say, hey, you know what? I exist. And not only do I exist, I've existed for centuries. I've existed since man himself emerged. We have people who have this gender Confusion, i.e. Dis- dysfunction, i.e. 
uh, you know, societal prejudice that disallows anyone even investigating that area of themselves. You're a freak. You're weird. You need surgery. You need castration. And the fact that we have transgender people that have stepped out courageously as they have is a testament to them. Dave Chappelle, as much as I admire him as a comic and a satirist and a social commentator, it doesn't take a lot of guts to kick someone who's not big enough to kick back, which is what he's doing. Yeah, that's a good Uh, point. Although I have to say, when he kicks at the Jews in Hollywood, you know, they can kick back, but I'm not sure that it's helpful to anyone or even all that funny, particularly. I think he's got a community of people, a community of listeners and fans that uh, join him in his views. And so it makes him a little bit more than what he appears to be. The, the, the thing about uh, uh, this this cat, this rapper Yee, and all these other people that are suddenly reemerging as anti-Semites, they've been empowered by a a right wing that's getting smaller and getting more vicious. I think that's probably accurate. Yeah. They're getting smaller. They're getting less influential. And they're getting more vicious about it because they've lost, as I said, Tori, they've lost their place in line. They're no longer at the front of the line. They don't, let, they don't longer get to kick indoors and tell people how to think and how to live. People are fighting back. And now they're saying, you know, it's okay to be white. All of these stupid bumper stickers. Nobody ever said it, was, it wasn't okay to be white, Jack. Other people are saying, get off their back. You know, climb down off of their back. Right. Um, Chappelle, when he starts into his anti-Semitism, he's coming from a place of he's actually coming from a place of power as well, because he's got a community of fans, morons, though they may be in that area um, and other performers that join him in that. Um, You know, I think the time is going to come very rapidly for Dave Chappelle, though. I don't think he's going to be as big a star as he can be, because this this stuff I almost said. Yeah, I know. You've been off the air for a while there, Phil. You're going to just say anything, aren't you? Same little podcast. It's going to eventually cut him down to size. I do not see him uh, becoming as big as Chris Rock. I don't see him becoming as big as uh, some of the, the bigger, you know, um, uh, Steve, uh, Stephen Colbert, some of these giants, you know, uh, yeah. that uh, Steve Carell. All these guys who came out of Second City became bigger than big. Dave Chappelle is always going to be occupying a niche below them because he's not, he doesn't get it. Well, the thing about him, and I I really like so much of his work, and he's really so good at pointing out racism in this country in a way that, as you point out, other kinds of ignorance really makes people sit up and go, Aha, uh-huh, yeah, that's that is real and true. But with his his anti-trans rants, what was what was interesting to me was he used one of the oldest outs in the book. He did he did those some of my best friends. Like, look, I have a best friend who was look, I can't be that because look at my trans friend and I you, you wonder how how he doesn't see when white people go, well, look, I have a black friend. You know, I mean, how how did he miss that? Well, he's 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 living. He's gotten comfortable uh, in that seat of in that. And I say this relatively. He's gotten comfortable in his seat of power. He almost imagines himself to be just like those other people live. The, the white people who say my best friends are black. Now he kind of understands where they're coming from. I think Dave's in a world of self delusion. And I will go one further. And this is probably not fair, but, you know. We all say it. When a guy is ranting and raving against something, um, what is it? What what is the, the line from the from the movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? In the heart of the fanatic, 
there's always a secret doubt. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that um, Jesse Helms was my first suspicion. I never, nobody ever, you remember Jesse Helms, the great anti-gay crusader? I was always secretly convinced that somewhere there was a photo of Jesse Helms with people he would not have approved of him being with. I never found that photo, and so far no one has shown me that photo. But the louder they yell, the more you usually worry that there's let's put it this way would it shock you to find out that david chappelle had some high heels and a tutu in his closet no not at all and i would say to him god did you just come on out dude and stop this the damage you're causing is terrible i'm not gonna i won't, won't hang me up you know it won't hang me up at all i think you're a funny man you know and, i mean but, but uh and the same thing with this cat uh uh, uh down in florida DeSantis. yeah yeah with all of it, I, you know, I'm, I got to believe that somewhere, you know, back in Iraq when he was getting his, when he was putting in his time in his, in his nice, cute, white pant Navy uniform, <laughs> I don't know, something got out of control there somewhere, but uh, it's all right. It's okay. I mean, and, and those guys always turn around on me and they say, well, what are you gay, Henry? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Give me 20 bucks and I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you know it's. It, this is what's going on, I think, in a lot of areas. And with Dave Chappelle, to, to single those folks out, and the fact that he has trans friends. One. One dead have. one. One dead trans friend doth not an open-minded person make. Well, fortunate, I guess, that that man's not around to tell the story. But um, I think that that's, that's the other thing we have to... That I think we should talk more about that. Yeah. Know? That the, if you're if you're so invested in in homophobia and so invested in grooming and all of this nonsense that they talk about, what's going on with you? Because it's it's hate, you know, that you're selling here. That's true. So. What about on the live performance stage? I know you do a good share of live performance. Are audiences starting to protest when people market this stuff as humor? Well, it's hard to ask me that because. When I do a live show, and they're very, very rare, my fans turn out, and they already get what I do. Um, and <clears throat> so I can break into any voice, and they'll understand what I'm saying. They, they know where I'm coming from. Um, I, I'm thinking be- more of when you go to see other other people. I know you have a lot of fans in the, in the acting world, in the comedy world, and I'm assuming that once or twice you go see them, uh, you know, support well, I them. Wanted to, I, wanted to talk about my, I wanted to talk about myself a little bit. Uh, build up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so I think, um, well, yeah, and where you see it is there's a fall off in the number of people that want to come and see you. And there's a fall off in the number of bookings that you're getting. And there's just a drop off in general because you're just not funny. Um, now, who finds homophobia funny? Well, we, we can probably guess how many of them are there. I think when you do your first tour, everybody kind of goes, <laughs> well, that was, you know, it's kind of cute. When you're on about second or third, you know, month and sixth month, unless you're really, really super powerful, people are just going to not dig it anymore and you're you're relegated to maybe doing youtube influencer stuff oh um, you know well i mean i'm sorry but you know they just busted some guy in romania for trafficking women some uh, influencer this andrew take he immediately gave greta thunberg crap and then gets arrested the next day for <laughs> sex traffic 
Shocking. Shocking news. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting to me. I do not much go to comedy shows because most of... Well, I'll just I'll just come clean here. I got a kid who is an aspiring performer and I made a point of going to hear him and in his early developmental phase, which he is still in. I can say this um, very early. Like, please don't do this in front of people I know early. Um, But there was so much um hatred of women and hate and this was in Canada I went to see it the 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 misogyny was alarming plus how many men are really raised to believe that women want to hear about their private parts like that who's who's looking down at their little two-year-old kid that they're raising going could you talk a little bit more to mommy and daddy about your private parts these guys grow up and that's like all they want to talk about I don't well, those guys, I don't know where your son is in terms of his development as a performer. Was he doing that material? No, I actually was interesting. Okay. As a mother, I got to say to him, nobody wants to hear about your private parts. So just yeah, skip yeah. that part of your career and move on to things that are actually creative and visionary and entertaining and interesting. And if you can't do that, then stay home. Well, they're, they're one step out of the kitchen and the rumpus room where they all meet on weekends to do gaming, which I'm sure you had the guys over to your house when they were teenagers doing their gaming. <laughs> they step away from the gaming at the, at mom's house, and now they step away from that, and now they're hanging out at a coffee shop, but they're all still hanging with the guys, and they're still doing guy stuff. And unless they're particularly enlightened and really smart guys, they're still going to keep doing that guy stuff when they finally reach the stage of a comedy club. And then they hopefully will get a few women in the audience, and they'll bomb a few times. And then they'll know they've got to truly be unique because all those cats that do all that kind of stuff, Tori, are a dime a dozen. Uh, I don't even find them funny. Um, And, you know, there was a time when maybe I did way back. Uh, So uh, I think they probably are, 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 you know, condemned to doing a few comedy shows. And then what else have you got? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there are women. I saw some women who were attempting to do this same thing. It was ugly on the guys. It was ugly on the women. But I did notice that some women who genuinely are funny now seem to have crawled out of that muck. Um, And now the next crop coming up may not have to roll around in the muck to begin with. Anything final that you want to leave us with as we look into 2023 that we should predict for um, what what will be tolerated in the world of humor? I just would take your guidance on this. Who should we look at? I think I think, you know what, man, I I think in terms of comedy, you're going to be for if you're a comic, if you're a performer, you're listening to me right now, you're any kind of a satirist. You're just going to have to step up and start pulling uh, some uh, more original uh, takes out of your, you know what, as opposed to just sort of copying everybody else's act, starting with the Dave Chappelle's. You have to be original. You have to be authentic. That's the word we use in entertainment and art so much. Be authentic. Be who you are. And if you decide that you're nothing but a scumbag, well, good luck (laughs) with your your career. Thank you. Phil Hendry, most definitely not a scumbag. Satirist, humorist, friend of mine, and really, really, really brilliant performer you can hear his podcast phil hendry anything coming up that we should watch for of yours particularly i've got a oh yeah i'm um uh there's a movie i just did in fact they they allowed me to do a whole bunch of improv called destroy all neighbors uh with jonah and i play i, I get to do a, a small improvisational part as a swat team police officer 
uh, <laughs> I can't really get into this, into it too much, but the guy that is holding people hostage is a progressive rock fan. Oh, good so, to know. And, and aren't they all? Um, I, I'm really glad you could spend time. Thank you so much. Phil Hendry, watch for his movie, Destroy All Neighbors. Listen to his podcast. and, and my movie, not my movie. I well, I'm going to call it your movie because this is talk radio and we can make stuff up, um, as you know. <laughs> Phil Hendry, at anywhere you find him, you will love him. And then you can write me a nice thank you note once once you've experienced what he has to offer. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tori. See you later. Thank you. We will. 3.30 WCPT. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan on WCPT, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan, who's taking a holiday weekend off. So I'll be here till five. It's 3.35 in a moment. We're going to look a little bit behind the curtain of opposition research. It's been very much in the news lately. Wanted to check back with a couple of uh, texts that you have sent concerning um, the Dave Chappelle and uh, edgy humor uh, conversation we heard from Beth. Shock jocks are different from comedians who push the envelope. They just say shocking things to be shocking and end up being simply offensive. I'm afraid I stuck Chappelle in that category years ago. Um, and then uh, Beth, who sent us this text from Michigan. There's always hope, though. Back in the 80s, how word stern, she called him how weird can get stern, went full on shock jock, but has turned into a decent human being, I think. So... Um, I don't know Howard personally, but he certainly seems to be funny and uh, have done some work on himself and has talked about that. So so that is always good to do some work on yourself. Speaking of doing some work on yourself and some work on other people, we are joined now by Ann Davis. She is the owner of the research firm Informed Strategies. For more than 20 years, uh, she's been working with campaigns, including three presidential campaigns, to uh, to help the candidates understand who their opponents are. Uh, and welcome to WCPT. I'm sure you've been following the story of the embellished resume with a great deal of interest. And uh, has it made you laugh? Because I have laughed. Uh, uh, hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, well, yes, it has made me laugh. I, it is outrageous, even in a world of outrageousness. <laughs> yes. If, if, you're, if you're wondering who we're talking about, we're talking about Congressperson elect Santos from New York, who managed to get through not one, but two campaigns without anybody figuring out until the New York Times did it, that he was uh, apparently completely making up his whole life story, like even stuff that he didn't <laughs> even need to make up. So, in general, because I know that this is this is your you know, this this is your milieu, and you probably don't want to diss any particular uh, group of people or lack thereof. When someone runs for office, and it, first of all, this this is probably the best proof ever that you do need. I think the question has been resolved once <laughs> and for all. You need opposition research. Yes, <laughs> from your lips. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yes. if anybody ever says to you that you're pitching, uh, I don't really think I need opposition research, you will say back to them two words, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. And, um, and the other 
Well, the flip side of that is uh, everybody needs to do self-research, which a lot of candidates feel they only want the research on their opponent. Um, but uh, if someone had done research on old George, uh, they would have found a lot of this. But I, I would imagine they, he I don't really understand what's going on with him, why there's so many lies and fabrications. And so I don't know if they would have even you know, hired someone to do self-research. Well, do you think they maybe just didn't take him seriously as a candidate at all? And so they figured it wasn't wasn't important because he was, you know, he was going to be like one of those little ankle-biting chihuahua dogs that you just kind of <laughs> shake off? Or what What was the, what? what is the uh, thinking I, there, typically? I, well, let me just say I don't know anything internal about the uh, campaign, Zimmerman campaign, and or... So this is all speculation on my part. And By so, the way, you know, that that, that is my favorite my, my favorite piece of equipment. You've just reached for the speculator. So carry on. <laughs> okay, will do. Uh, well, you know, in 2020, you know, he lost by 12 points. Obviously, a different candidate he was running against, and then you know, Biden won the district by 10 points. Um, and when you're looking at 435 races, you have to make you have to prioritize. Um, which are the most likely for you to win or which do you need to spend the most defending? You know, there's limit on budgets. There's a limit on time. You have a very hard deadline uh, for the most part. Um, So you have to prioritize and looking at those numbers. I don't know what polling showed over the course of the year, how much it changed, but you have to make a lot of those decisions pretty early Uh um, as far as itself. My understanding is there was opposition research done on Santos, and it's kind of an interesting story, it looks like, of what happened. Um, You know, the committee, when there's a late primary, particularly when there's a late primary, um, the committee does uh, research on the Republican opponent. Um, In this case, the Democratic primary didn't end until the end of August. So you have about, you know, a month or so to convince voters and cut your ads and figure out your strategy um, because you've just finished running against all your Democratic opponents. Um, And then. uh, So you have that going on again, you have to prioritize. So the committee had done a full book on him. I understand it was 87 pages um, that had a lot of these in it. Really? Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is this is news to me. So you're you're (laughs) telling me that the Democrats had an 87 or the Republicans had an 87 page book on the Democrats. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, that is primarily a starting off point. But again, with such a late primary, you're starting way behind. Um, And. So these arguments were, and this is all from co- public coverage. I, again, haven't talked to anyone. No, that's internal. fine. Yes. Well, that's where I'm getting mine. I mean, if I were doing an ad now with yeah. what I knew now, know now. Oh, my gosh. I would yeah. just I would just put a picture of him talking, and then I would have his pants slowly <laughs> bursting into flame. Like, the pants on fire award would totally go. But, but um, yes. yeah, I'm a very visual imaginer of people. <laughs> I like it. So let me just ask you, when you take on um, a client and you want to first find out what she or he might not want brought forward, what are some of the kinds of things that people, without naming any names, what are some (laughs) of the kinds of things that people say to you that they have and they're worried about coming out in the election? Uh, 
primarily their personal issues, um, a bad divorce, DUI, you know, uh, those kinds of things they're most concerned about. Mm-hmm. But you would be surprised at their selective memory. Yeah. <laughs> there have been a lot of even public examples of candidates forgetting <laughs> that they had certain jobs and it came out in the news because, again, there, some candidates are really pressuring the researcher to focus not as much on themselves, but they forget to mention they were a lobbyist or something like that. Oh, did I forget to mention that ex murder that I committed? It's been so long. I just kind of, you know, once you get the blood out of the carpet, it just kind of it skips your yeah. mind. So, yeah, it goes right out of your memory. Now, yeah. do you have the job of saying to these people, this is going to come out and you just shouldn't run? Is that your job? Yes. Yes? Well, for my role, so you usually do a, a, an interview with a candidate, but then you're going to do your own research on them. And when you are talking to them, it depends. It can change. Sometimes the researcher does the interview. Sometimes they prefer someone closer to them. I would like it to be the person they are most comfortable with. And for that person to emphasize, yes, whatever it is, it's going to come out. And it's way better to be prepared for that, um, you know, uh, then have you going running around last minute, especially in the last few weeks of a campaign. It's so hectic. You're getting attacked. You know, there's so much going on. Do, it may take you a day to respond. So that's way too late. Do people? Oh, a day is too late. Okay, All, more good information. Do people? <laughs> old, do older candidates really understand the the danger of social media and 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 younger candidates i mean we're i can't figure out who's worse the people who just don't <laughs> believe that you know stuff really is around forever or the people who, who like my my kids age who put up stuff and I, I can't even tell you how many conversations i have had with people my kids age going Anything you put on the internet is there forever and ever and ever till the earth burns up to a crisp and then someone will find it from some satellite in space. How, how <laughs> yeah, do you yeah. yeah, how do you explain this to different uh, demographics? That's a great question. Um and it does vary. It really depends on the individual, but they don't have control over what we research. Like you, you pretty much do it without talking to them, or I do, you know, until you're done, mm-hmm. because um, you don't want them guiding you or saying, "Oh, you don't need to look at that." You know, so um, it's you know they, and so to prevent, like you're saying, to prevent future errors <laughs> um, on Twitter. Yes, um, you know, all you can do is warn them, and uh, hopefully, they have a body person or communications person or someone who is watching their. Um, social media more closely if they're an elected or they have some restraint um, or they may even have a staffer doing it for them, which can be better a lot of times. Yes. Yeah, there have been some crazy things on social media. Yes. I I (laughs) want to talk about some of those crazy things and whether or not um, the candidate is always responsible. If if you can hold on, we'll talk more about this in a moment. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan, we are talking with uh, opposition research guru Ann Davis, who owns Informed Strategies and has advised and, and uh, done research on more than three, including three presidential campaigns, and has been doing this for over 20 years. More of her wisdom and experience in a moment. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan. Time now, 348, joined by um, Ann Davis, opposition research guru. Um, I have some questions for you, Ann, uh, that I'll just kind of try and go through here. Welcome sure. back. Um, when When candidates are doing performance, like if they're speaking or they're at events, are there things that show up on social media that they really can't prevent and then have to explain? In my mind's eye, for example, I'm thinking that if I were really trying to sabotage somebody, I might stand behind her or behind him and hold up a sign that implies that the candidate supports something or people that Mm. he or she does not. Do you see this kind of thing? <laughs> I actually have not seen that, um, and that's pretty uh, <laughs> sneaky. Um, but well, I actually haven't seen that type of sabotage myself, um, and I'm trying. I don't think I've heard heard of that, but uh, it definitely can happen. We can see. see I'm sneakier than than. Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. I just Crafty. no <laughs> sneaky's fine. I'll own sneaky. <laughs> so speaking of sneaky, there's this image of. Uh, opposition, or as it's called in the business, I believe, oppo research people, like sneaking through people's garbage cans. Does that really happen? <laughs> Not if you want to keep your job or if you want your candidate to get elected. Uh, it, all we do is go through public information, um, any public documentation, uh, because the goal, there's a lot of goals. Or there's a, the research has a lot of uses on the campaign, but one thing, if you want to use it for ads, is you'd like to get it covered by the press so that you can – it's not your candidate or your campaign making the argument. It was, in the, it was in the Washington Post. So a reporter is going to verify anything you give them. You may give them – you know, get them started, but they're going to go back and redo everything you did. Um, and so you're not getting – you know, it's not it, – It's they're not going to – use what you got out of their trash. Um, you know, it is, un- of course, it's unethical. Uh, and there have been instances, you know, someone got a little um, overzealous and raided some trash and got caught. And it, the blowback on the candidate, that candidate and their campaign was just uh, so much bigger than anything that could have been found in the trash. Oh, well, um, see, I just yeah. thought I would assume that, you know, companies that make shredders would be behind uh Things like that. Yeah, yes. probably. Yes. 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 Uh, so so yeah, can you can you say I don't remember to to mind. I, I don't remember the um, campaign where people went through, although I do remember reading something about something. Can you elaborate on that or no? Uh, yeah, I don't think that I can. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. I promised I'd be nice. I'm playing nicely here. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, well, cause we need to know how this stuff works. So yeah, now, I understand. So now, um, everybody, as you correctly point out, once the media get hold of a story, let's just use Santos, George Santos. Congress personal elect is an example. It is like a, a school of piranha. I mean, now yep. CNN is like, oh, we found some more dirt. Oh, we found mm-hmm. everyone is. I mean, there's so much. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen in your whole life a candidate who is this? <laughs> I've never. I've, I've been in, the, in, in media for many, many years. 
I usually you get one thing or two or three things or a trend. Like when it's oh, sexual, yeah. when it's a DUI or usually my, my my kids have heard me say this a bunch of times. Someone who gets busted for sexual harassment. It's like a mantra in my house. It's never just once. Someone who gets busted for DUI. It's never just once. I mean, the odds of yeah. you being busted one time for one thing, the only time, forget it. it you might as well just go buy a lottery ticket and figure tomorrow <laughs> you, you own all of Miami Beach. That's just not going to happen. So, right. so mm-hmm. um, when, when you see a story like the Santos mm-hmm. piece in the New York Times, what do you figure is going to happen next? Ooh, that's a, um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, each day, so another, you know, news outlet is reporting even more and uncovering even more, it seems like. So I think this will go on. And obviously, you know, the attorney general getting involved gave it a lot more juice, um, you know, made it a lot more newsworthy, I believe. So how that progresses, I think it's going to be an important element of the story and what happens. But right now, it just seems like, you know, news outlets are continuing to dig in and try to find, see if they can find any more elements, which so far they've been successful over a pretty substantial amount of time. Um, and I do want to mention just a, real quick, like that is why you do some things that may seem ridiculous. Checking someone's college, you know, making sure they graduated when they said they did may seem silly. And, you know, saying to Oaks is obviously an extreme example, but in my mind, if someone lies about a quote unquote small thing, like their GPA, that's a red flag. You know, it may not be enough to run an ad, but there, like you were saying, to your point, there's going to be other sketchy things that they likely did. Um, and I've never seen that disproven in my work. <laughs> yes. So at so, the very least, you're getting an indication that you're going to find more. Let me ask you this. When it's your own party and your own candidate and something has come out, um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe not your client. Let's assume that your work is perfect and you find everything. <laughs> Nothing ever comes out that you didn't know about first. We'll just stipulate to that. When, when Ann Davis has done the opposition research or the research on her candidate, there will be no surprises. But in the case of some other less talented researcher who perhaps, despite every smart thing they could do, the campaign is hired instead of you, or maybe you're already taken, and then something comes out in what what usually happens and what in your considered an expert opinion should happen when you get caught with some you know, an unpleasant fact mm. uh, so you immediately try to research what is the deal what's the truth um, how much you know is that accurate what their attack is or what has come up from a reporter or something like that and then try to find any arguments you can to push back you know, whether it's looking at the source or, um, you know, where this originally came from or are there any mitigating circumstances. Um, so really, for the research perspective, you dive in. And obviously, the communications team has a large part on trying to tap this down, you know, try to reframe it. Um, and, you know, depending on how bad it is, whether you need to do ads or do something more, you know, some people do a statement you can decide if it's worth it. Cause again, like you don't want to keep it going. Um, but you can decide how damaging it, um, sounds like, but for research, you really just dive in and try to find out all you can 
about what's going on. I see. So the truth will set you free. Now, what if, <laughs> what okay. if you, you have a candidate like, oh, say Donald Trump, who just doesn't care that he's right. lying and just lies pretty much from the, you know, right after breakfast until he turns <laughs> off his TV. And so the media comes and, and, and now we've all been watching this. It never seems they called Reagan the Teflon president. But really, I, I think whatever nonstick surface there is now, it's it's worse mm-hmm. with Trump because he he's proud. He's proud of all this. I, yeah. I'm just as an example, like when he didn't pay his workers when he built those casinos, mm-hmm. and yep. he said, "Oh, that just shows what a smart business person I am. If I don't pay any taxes, that just shows you what a genius I am." What what would mm-hmm. what would you do if you had the terrible fortune to be <laughs> working for Donald Trump? What do you do with someone like that? Oh, if you work for someone like that, I would suggest getting another job, going to another campaign. Because <laughs> um, you're, I mean, it's pointless and you're just going to be swimming upstream every day because there are going to be so many lies and things. Um, but, if, you know, for your appointment, it's very, it's, it's challenging. And that kind of goes to speak to Santos issue in that generally polling shows that voters expect candidates to lie. So when you do find a lie, on its own, it, it doesn't poll very well, apparently, you know, that they lied, um, which is a bummer. But true. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't know what the polling showed for Santos, but I'm imagining that whoever was deciding what a tax to do on him, the polling indicated there were other arguments more moving to voters. And at some point, you know, you don't know where the tipping point is going to be, but it, then as more and more lies piled up. Um, in which also him having this inexplicable $11 million windfall in two years. That is odd, isn't that it? Adding up. Yeah. Yes. All of that adding up then made it more interesting and more newsworthy. But, have you got any uh, theories about, about where, have you got any theories about where this money um, may have come from? If, if it's even real? I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, and it is unique as well in that there is more legal issue with this because he paid so much for his own campaign. So he may could have violated, you know, disclosure laws. Um, you know, so if those hadn't happened, I don't know if it would still be as big a deal. I hope so. But, um, you know, it's kind of a unique situation. But well, we are talking about we are, I have no idea. We are talking about the Republican Party and truth <laughs> and the Republican Party seem to have mostly parted ways some time ago. <laughs> Yep, slam the door behind them. Yeah, mostly. I mean, I don't want to besmirch every... I I still have friends who are Republicans who are just kind of going, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know what... I don't know. Um, Yeah. Yeah. They're trying so hard. God bless them. And I, (laughs) and I, I feel... I don't think... I've now come to the point where I actually do start to feel sorry for them. I don't know what they think will happen if they change to independence. I mean, maybe they think their pants will catch on fire. I just don't know. So overall, um, when you have um, a candidate like a, a Donald Trump who just lies and seems proud of it, um, have, well, have you? Do you? Does this seem to you? And we just have a minute here. Does this seem to you like it's just part of? politician's character and that really people say Donald Trump wasn't a politician, but he was the pure essence of a politician that just believes that whatever he says and does will be fine. Uh, 
Honestly, it is so complex. I don't know if I can give you a great answer, but it does seem that luckily people are and voters are still wanting some level of truth from their candidates. Um, Trump was right now, it seems like an outlier. I mean, to a degree, obviously he had his other um, accolades that kind of followed in his footsteps, but um, you know, nothing has been as bad as Trump. And I'm still sort of dumbfounded by supporters not caring about the large and depth of lies that he, um, you know, gave throughout his entire political career. So it's a little dumbfounding to me, to be okay, honest. Well, but it doesn't it, seem that everyone's following that. There is a lot of head shaking that goes on. Thank you so much for being with us, Ann Davis. I appreciate your time. Thank you. It was really fun. Ann Davis, opposition researcher on WCPT Radio. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Six minutes after four o'clock, I am Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito, who has a holiday weekend to do with whatever she pleases. Congratulations, Joan. You work hard. You deserve it. Um, we we have been speaking about resume embellishment and ethics and doing the right thing. That seems to have sort of been the, a theme today, accountability. Uh, in a moment, we're going to speak with my favorite law professor of all time. In a moment, but I want to catch up with some of the texts that you have sent to us concerning accountability at uh, over at Midway Airport and Southwest Airlines um, and what their CEO should be doing. Um, the real reason Southwest is uh, was down for so long compared to the other airlines, the company was running 1990s mainframe flight scheduling that was incapable of operating in the scenario until we hear a plan to honestly pu- um to honestly publish and solve this problem. I'm not sure what he meant by publish. Uh, Southwest is not the company to fly. That's from Mark. I would say this to, to Mark and to anyone thinking of falling on a sword for an ethical or um, a technical misstep with your company. For sure, Mark, a plan to fix so it doesn't happen again. Now, speaking of fixing so it doesn't happen again, um, do the words cryptocurrency mean anything to you yet still uh and how about sam bankman freed and what what is going to happen to him now that he's uh, back in the country joining us university of california law school hastings law school professor david levine is with us david welcome hey good afternoon tori thanks for having me back it is always a pleasure to speak with you so many questions uh, is is Sam Bankman Freed crypto uh, alleged fraudster back in the country now and and uh, in your neck of the woods in California? Where where is the guy? He he is Tori. What happened is that he had been holing up in the Bahamas, where his company was headquartered, uh, and the people the uh, authorities in the Bahamas had arrested him and put him in jail. And he didn't particularly care for that. And so it looks like they made a deal, which is he agreed to extradition to the United States. He appeared briefly in federal court in New York, where he's going to have to pay the piper. And then they made a deal so that he was under an extraordinary $250 million bond, uh, which allowed him to go to house arrest. And so he is under the care and custody of his parents in Palo Alto in their home uh, near the Stanford campus. So, 
and I, you know, I realize that parents are not really responsible for all of their children's behavior and everything they do and how they turn out. But clearly they love him, care for him and are willing to take him in. Is it true that they've mortgaged their house and whose house is worth even in Palo Alto? Whose house is worth two hundred and fifty million dollars? And how did they come up with that? Well, it's a bit of a mystery where all the money came from. Uh, my understanding of the house is, is like a starter house. It's only a $4 million house was the best estimate that I had. Uh, and it's not clear where the rest of the money has come from, but they have pledged the home. I'm sure they've pledged some other assets. And it, it, it's really not clear who else has made a promise. So no money has actually been deposited with the court. But what they have are these promises and uh, effectively collateral in the event that he does not show up as required back in New York. Uh, I think there's a hearing next week, for example. So first legal, well, two legal questions then come to mind. Um, The first question is, could he guarantee his bail with money that he allegedly stole, seeing as at this point he hasn't been convicted of having stolen anybody's money? Can, Can you use funds that are arguably from illicit sources for your bail? Uh, In this case, no, because the company already declared bankruptcy and so that the assets are now under the control of a trustee in bankruptcy. Uh, So at least that money could not be used. My understanding is that he doesn't have that much in the way of personal funds because of the way everything has gone down the drain. Uh, And but it's tied up with uh, these two interlocking companies. That well, that's what he says anyway. He says, "Oh, I just have a few hundred, a few thousand dollars." But what about? Here's the other thing: he's in trouble allegedly for having spent a lot of the resources of his crypto company on luxury real estate. How come, if that's true, he doesn't pledge his own luxury real estate? Well, we don't know exactly what, you know, we don't know exactly what was and wasn't pledged. Uh, I couldn't get a good rundown on exactly where the money came from. But it may be that, yes, that some of that is pledged. Now, there'll be issues um, in, the, in the bankruptcy proceeding in terms of who has priority, who actually, quote unquote, owns something or, you know, what is going to be able to go back to creditors, to the people who thought that their crypto money was safe and secure in FTX in his exchange company. Ah, OK. So that that brings us to the company itself and the two people who have pleaded guilty who were his near associates, and I use near as a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We've all heard about the polyamory stories. He, Sam Bankman-Fried's been standing up in front of the cameras and saying, this was a terrible mistake. I was the smartest person in the universe, but now suddenly I'm not. And so, um, gosh, you know, I was brilliant, but something happened, and now I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And I, I noticed that he's not saying I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. But... If your two immediate subordinates say that they did not make mistakes, that they knew exactly what they were doing, uh, what's likely to happen when he says, well, you know, they may have said they knew, but I didn't know? Well, it depends on what kind of testimony they provide. I mean, they both have pleaded guilty already. So obviously there was a very strong case against both of them. And part of the uh, plea bargain is that they've agreed to testify against Sam Bankman-Fried. So it's going to be a little tough uh, if they have the goods, if they've got the receipts uh, to say we all knew exactly what we were doing when we were 
uh, taking money from one company to shore up the other and then taking money out of Alameda Research for, you know, to make to make our lives comfortable. Uh, it's going to be tough to answer that with, oh, I, I had no idea, right? Uh, you know, I'm shocked, shocked that there was gambling going on in this establishment. Right. Well, I, if you want to prove that, if you were one of these people and you knew that the the bottom was about to fall out of your enterprise, what would you do to support your? Would this be the USB uh, stick that comes out in your in your purse, or how how what are they going to use to prove that they knew all along? No, seriously. I mean, I don't know. What what do you do? Do you stick? Do you send emails? Do you print everything out? What do you do if you're going to need to prove to the to the feds? Like, yeah, we we knew. Look here here are as you put it the receipts. Well, I guess. You know, I guess it depends on when did they know the curtain was falling, because it sure seemed as if this thing fell apart really, really quickly. I mean, if you look at the week uh, that happened, the week that went on where, uh, let's say, a week before everything looked good and Sam Bankman-Fried was one of the saviors of the crypto industry. And then within a week, he was out as CEO. The the company had uh, declared bankruptcy. And then shortly thereafter, uh, these uh, two senior people pled guilty. All that happened very, very quickly. So if you didn't know it was going to fall apart, maybe you weren't so meticulous as to, uh, you know, use the memory sticks to take, to take documents with you as you went along. So what we don't know is, you know, is there email traffic? Uh, are there text messages back and forth saying, what are we doing? Or, you know, hey, we fooled them once again, or what? We just, we just don't know. But if you have these two people who have pled guilty, and they're going to say he was there in the room, and he ran it, and he told us ABC, and what is he going to say in response? I don't remember. It never <laughs> happened that way. And then the jury would, you know, would have to decide um, who's, who's right here. Well, I, I guess, listening to you describe this, that most people are not as sneaky as I am because just, you know, getting out my favorite tool, the speculator here, if if I knew all along that what I was doing was fishy, then my next logical and these aren't stupid people. The next logical thing is, well, if I'm doing something that's illegal sooner or later, they're going to come for me. And therefore, I better I better build a fire exit in the form of emails or printouts or USB stick or sending the email traffic to myself, because it sounds like the emails weren't even monitored. You could have just forwarded everything to your Yahoo account from 1986. And, you know, you you would have right. you right. would have had it all. But controls. Right. Right. Controls at that company, because the trustee in bankruptcy, a man who had to clean up Enron's bankruptcy said he's never seen anything like the mess that Bankman Fried has left. So, uh, yeah, you're, we're, we're in the realm of speculation. There's somebody who knew, you know, that the, uh, the long arm of the law was going to come down on us. And uh, maybe I had better start writing those memos saying, hey, remember that you told me I was supposed to do ABC and remember that I resisted, but you ordered it. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I do stuff stuff like that. I do stuff like that. So we so we just don't know how foresighted these uh, these lieutenants were uh, if if they really saw that the end was near and that they had better cover themselves. We, We just don't know yet. You know, we'll see what comes out. When you deal with folks like this and I know that you've come around them in your in your storied career 
is there a, the Sam Bankman Freeds I'm thinking of, or his lieutenants? What what are the character traits that um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you think about this, and I'm gonna and have you answer in a moment. What what are some of the character traits that you notice about them that lead you to believe whatever conclusion you believe about them? So, in other words. When you meet these people, what do you make of them? And I'm going to ask you to think that over, and then I'll ask you in a moment. It's WCPT 820. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito. It's 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. Facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I am Tori Ryder in for Joan. Uh, before I forget, I just want to thank Paul Shivari uh, and Julia Shu, who helped make sure that this show could come to you today. And of course, Matt, who brought me in here to WCPT to just make a mess in the first place. Speaking of the biggest mess, which Professor David Levine of uh, Hastings School of Law in uh, San Francisco, who has been with us, uh, pointed out is the, uh, the, the way that... Uh, uh, Sam Bankman Fried's company has been described the biggest mess, bigger than Enron, the mess that was made by Sam Bankman Fried. So, David Levine, Professor Levine, thanks for hanging with us. When when you meet these characters, um, what what is your sense of how they operate? Well, I don't think I've ever met one quite quite this large uh, before. I mean, what it seems like is that they have a sense of being able to get people convinced that they are all kind of on the same side, if you will, or that they have this relationship. So uh, think back to Bernie Madoff, uh, you know, a huge, huge scammer. Uh, and he was able to tap in to uh, people of his religion. Right. And that that's one of the things like, oh, he would never cheat us because we have this thing in common with Sam Bankman Freed, a uh, very smart guy. He went to MIT, got a degree in physics. His parents were college professors. Uh, and then he was able to speak a certain language to people. Uh, his whole persona, you know, the look that he cultivated with the shaggy hair and the T-shirt and all, it's this, this uh, Silicon Valley bro look. And so that he made people think he was one of them. He knew what he was talking about. He could talk a good game. And so that he got people to go along with him. And then the third example I'd give is Elizabeth Holmes uh, with the Serranos, with those blood uh, testing machines yes. that uh, were a complete fraud. And, yes. you know, she's, she's going to jail in a matter of months now. That uh, again, she was able to convince people with the persona. Uh, she was able to tap into a certain uh, generational difference in her case that, you know, the people on her board, I think, all kind of saw her as a, a daughter. She identified uh, in certain ways. She had all, she'd been to Stanford. And so uh, you need that. To be a really good con person, you have to be able to tap into who is your audience who is going to trust you. That, that's one of the most important things. Uh, I love that analysis. I was thinking of, of uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And in her case, she's kind of the visual opposite of Sam Bankman Freed. I mean, her thing, I, I don't think it hurt that she was a pretty blonde girl. I mean, I, I really don't think it hurt. And I guess, in a way, Sam Bankman Freed played up that, that nebbish, that's a, that's a commonly used term for a complete loser. <laughs> Uh, right, right. He yeah. looks right. If you look at him, right, just he just looks like this little puppy dog. Right. Uh, but a really smart puppy dog. Right. You know, he could really talk the language. And he did 
have a very early success uh, that he was able to arbitrage crypto between the price in the United States and the price in Japan. And he made a lot of money out of the box and that that gave him a certain kind of credibility. So that when he, then he went on to say, I've got bigger ideas and better ideas, uh, people bought into that. Unlike Elizabeth Holmes, who, who never made money doing anything other than fleecing her investors. So... I guess that that's a that I I thank you for bringing that point up. He had actually had one win. So at least one good at least one good win. And then he had some ideas about how he could generate more money. I mean, the the problem is that he did this outside of any normal regulatory scheme, Uh, you know, by by situating the company in Hong Kong first. And then in the Bahamas, he was staying out of the clutches of U.S. regulators. And he was operating the business in a way that uh, overlapped certain categories that we keep separate, things that we learned in the Great Depression, uh, that how you want to keep certain kinds of businesses separate, that the banking function is different from the exchange function, like the New York Stock Exchange, and that's different from an investment function. And you have to be careful about the leaders getting their fingers in the cookie jar. All of those things were going on with these companies. So you've just pointed out something else that's been shifting a little bit, which is the the kind of bleeding through of the borders of some of these investment companies and banking companies. And there's a, a real push to let everybody do everything. Um, do you think that, in a way, Sam Bankman-Fried benefited from the lobbying that some of these other financial institutions have done on their own behalf? It was like, yeah, I'm just, another, I'm just like them. I, you know, give me your money and I'll do the same kinds of things that they do. Did, did you see any signs of him benefiting from those efforts? Well, I think if you just take the name and exchange, sounds benign. Um, it's, you know, it sounds like a bank. It sounds like a stock exchange, but he was operating it differently uh, than they, than those kind of companies. I mean, like the New York Stock Exchange is a place where, bu- where buyers and sellers come together and there are people who are mandated market makers. And then there's regulation up the wazoo. Uh, but the companies, uh, your, your brokerages don't run the exchange. Everything is kept separate. And there's no, there's, and unlike, say, a bank, you know, big banks in Chicago, Continental Illinois, or other big banks, uh, they don't have the Federal Deposit Insurance Company behind yes. them. So it sounds like the, the names sound similar, they sound safe, but boy, when you see, oh, it's based in Hong Kong, it's based in the Bahamas, you want red lights going off. Saying, ah, okay, so now you've. Subject to the same regulation. You have just brought up another thing I want to ask you about in general. This is not, I know, your, your bailiwick, but you mentioned Hong Kong and Bahamas, and I know that the Virgin Islands are, I believe, a place where some people park. Not the U.S. Virgin Islands, but other British Virgin Islands, I think it was. Right. 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 Barbuda, the Caymans. Right, right, right. Caymans. Nearby. Yes. Yeah. There have been whole documentaries. So let me just ask you, if if I were a Sam Bankman freed and I had to think about the the best place for me to park allegedly ill-gotten gains, 
what is the place where nobody can find you and touch you and you can st- where where should he have put his money cuz Bahamas will extradite him to the US oh and by the way i don't know if you read the accounts of what Bahamian prison is like um maybe maybe he should have done that research too where should he have put his business well, that, well, one one good thing about the Bahamas was it was a nice place to live and it was easy to get to Washington, D.C., because one of the things that he started doing was lobbying and making big campaign contributions. You know, he was one of the biggest donors to the Biden campaign. Yes. He gave money to any number of Democrats. And one of the others gave a lot of money to Republicans. Yes. So they were starting to gain influence. And what he was trying to do is to lobby to make American financial markets more crypto friendly so that he then could move more easily into the American market. So, but I guess in the opposite direction of where would he want to put money? Well, look at Edward Snowden. Where does he turn up? Moscow. Uh, That would be a good place to hang out, but it's not quite as pleasant as the beaches in the Bahamas. You know, this is a good Uh, question. What's what's better, living in in, uh, a cloistered in Moscow or a Bahamian jail? I'm thinking... (laughs) I'm I'm not sure. In January. Yes, in January. Well, I did. I mean, did you read the accounts of what he was in the luxury suite, Sam Bankman Fried? He was in the the infirmary. Apparently, um, none of the cells have running water in the Bahamas and you have a bucket. Right. I'm I'm sure it's it's no picnic. I mean with a you know, with a lot of countries those those facilities are not nice at all and uh you know, it it probably was one of the reasons why he thought, hmm, maybe I shouldn't fight extradition if it's gonna happen anyway and if I could make a deal to stay at mommy and daddy's house in the meantime, it would be worth agreeing to come back to the U.S. Yes. Well, to to your point, um, supposedly he left the Bahamas against legal advice. But I'm kind of thinking that the lawyers who were advising him had also never seen a Bahamian jail. Right. Well, that's, I mean, it was pretty unpleasant, that's for sure. But, I mean, it's a trade-off. You know, it's just a trade-off that he could have delayed extradition. He could have fought it for a while. But ultimately, I think because of the treaties between the United States and the Bahamas, he would have been extradited. So so it's a, you know, it's a trade of where, where are you going to spend your time, where are you going to spend your money? Uh, while you're waiting, you're waiting to see what happens. That 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 makes perfect sense. We're going to leave it there, Professor David Levine, and I thank you um, for joining us and shedding a little light on on as uh, the the cleaner upper said the the biggest corporate mess since Enron. So thank you oh, so my much. Pleasure. My pleasure, Tori. All right, happy New Year to you and to you. That's Professor David Levine of uh, University of California's Hastings School of Law in San Francisco. Uh, coming up. Well, coming up, I think we'll just we'll just kind of review some of the information that you've been sending me uh, because you guys have some interesting things to say. It's 430 Joan Esposito's show where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. 435 on Joan Esposito's show as you make your way, perhaps home in the dark, but it's getting lighter. The light will soon be present. We're talking um, this next few minutes about just some of your observations, some of the things we've um, been talking about today, the Southwest Airlines accountability. If you've ever worked for somebody who really or with somebody or been that person who really took accountability, really stepped up and did, you know, just just made it right. 
just showed how it should be done. I would love to hear some of those stories. I know there must be some, and I'm, I'm racking my brain for somebody that I may have worked with over the years. I'm having trouble. I mean, this is radio after all. When did you work for somebody who said, you know what, that was my bad and I'm going to fix. This won't happen again. Also talking about the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried case coming next week. He will be, uh, as you've just heard uh, Professor Levine say and the news, he will be entering a plea next week. And he has a bunch of people who work just below him and lived with him who say, no, they, they knew what they were doing. This from Larry in Wheeling, this text, and by the way, you can text us, 763, I'm sorry, in, this, in the 773 area code, it's 763-WCPT, um, and you can call or text that number if you want to join the conversation. Larry says, remember the Wids kids in Barrington who ran a Ponzi scheme in the late 1980s, early 90s? Remember articles written about them in the business pages of the Daily Herald, how they were returning higher growth to their investors. Many famous Chicago people lost money, including Walter Payton and Bill Buckner. I'm trying to remember. I, a vague, vague. I'm going to have to look that up. This is what I love about doing talk radio. You learn. I do know, speaking of Ponzi schemes, and um, this was the radio Ponzi scheme. There was an attorney. Uh, he went to prison. I can say who he was. His name was Saul Fuss. And he represented a lot of the people you may have grown up listening to on the air, famous people. And uh, I remember distinctly, I was working in Top 40 Radio, and I thought, you know, well, maybe I'm never going to get off this overnight shift. Maybe I should go talk to Saul Foos. And a couple of things about that whole business and how it unfolded. First of all, I got a a dinner at the Palm. (laughs) Or maybe it was lunch. I got uh, his partner took took me uh, aside and told me I had to change completely the way I made up my face and dressed and wore my hair. I was so stupid and didn't even figure out that what they wanted was for me to be on television, which I did not want to do ever, still ever. Um, and then something interesting happened. He he said something. And this should happen with you. If should this ever happen to you, please take the benefit of my experience. He promised something that defied all common sense. Right? When someone comes to you with a business offer that just flies in the face of common sense, you should probably not believe him or her. Saul said to me, Well, he said, uh, if we can't move you to a different radio station, we can certainly get you more money where you are. Now, that was complete hokum because they had me in a contract. I couldn't work for any other radio stations. Why would they just reach into their pocket and go, yeah, here, have some more money? No business does that. No business, unless they're worried about you leaving or making trouble somehow, they don't just pay you more. Why would they? It's like when your kid comes to you for an allowance and says, you know, I want my allowance doubled. You say, well, what are you doing around here that you deserve more money? It doesn't matter what you need. It matters what you're worth, right? But I paid a nice chunk of money to have these folks represent me. And then I learned something else. There are a whole lot of people 
who believe someone who tells them what they want to hear. And a lot of them were in the radio industry. They handed over their life savings, some of them, to this guy who ran a Ponzi scheme and invested and gave them money for a while until the whole thing fell apart and he went to jail. It's it's remarkable how people want to believe. They want to believe something that is just on its face nonsensical. Now, I'm not saying that you should do your own research about everything or only believe what makes sense to you. I mean, I have no idea about quantum physics, but I'm pretty sure that the people who know enough about it to understand it are not just making it up. There are things, it's not like I can only believe what I can see. Otherwise, you could be a flat earther until you take your first plane trip. It's not that. It's that when somebody's talking to you about something that you actually know a little bit about, like your job, and they try to tell you that there's some way that you can get paid more for your job where you are without doing anything differently, there should be a little voice in your head that says, no, 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 that's not. That makes no sense. And when someone tells you that a chain of code that's valuable because um, nobody can track it and it depends entirely on trust, wants you to put all your money in these little chains of code that nobody can keep track of and that are built entirely on trust, there should be a little voice in your head that says, why, why would I trust this little chain of code that nobody can keep track of? Why would I trust that? And then when it all goes south, they're like, well, but there's 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 no way to, to, to keep track of this. Like, yeah, there's no way because you bought the whole idea that it was all at tr- on trust. You cannot have it both ways. Although some people try. And, and I, I cite as evidence uh, my favorite quote from the January 6th hearing documents of the day. I don't know if you've seen this or not. Uh, it's making the rounds of um, news sites. And if you haven't heard it, please allow me the favor of being the first to break this information to your gentle ears. According to the January 6th panel, former President Donald Trump wanted to trademark the phrase rigged election. I'm not making this up. I am not making this up. He wished to trademark the phrase rigged election. Which kind of also brings me back to Sam Bankman-Fried, who is trying to trademark apparently the look of someone who never shaves, bathes, cuts his hair, and is therefore smart. I would like to point out that nowhere on the application to MIT does it ask you how often you bathe. Perhaps it should or cut your hair, perhaps they should. But I do want to be perhaps the first person to say this to you. If and when Sam Bankman-Fried goes to prison, the wardrobe will definitely be an upgrade. Yeah, they, they get to wear in some prisons those, uh, those nice chambray, you know, those blue work shirts in some prisons. That'd be an upgrade for him, I think. Your um, your thoughts, 773-763-WCPT. That's the phone number. Let's get to some more of them that have come in as texts. Um, let's go. Whoops. I, I am not an astute manipulator of the computer here. 
So I'm working on getting there. Getting there. Ah, there we go. Somebody uh, uh, has written to us concerning the description of Sam Bankman-Fried. Are you sure you're not describing Trump? It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. But in some ways, in some in some character features, they resemble one another. And I've heard a lot of people say that Donald Trump is not bright. I think he's I think he's very bright. I think he's very cunning is what he does with his intellect. But my aunt used to have a phrase, which I think applies equally to our former president and to Sam Fankman Freed. And I will give you this gift this evening as well. She used to say, smart, 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 dumb. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Time now, 4.40. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The facts do matter. That's why you're here, and that's why you'll keep listening to Patty Vasquez driving it home, which... We'll be right here in your ears in just about 15 minutes. Patty will be in two hours. Double the patty. No, I'm not going to make a double patty. No, I'm not. We're just glad she's here because, you know, if you get stuck in traffic, you don't have to worry about what will happen if you don't get home in the next hour. You're cool. She'll keep you company. That's always a good thing. It's very interesting. Uh, We were talking about uh, opposition research and what politicians say and how much of it is true and how much of it is not. There are so many fact-checking features available right on your phone that I really don't understand. Can you explain to me why people want to follow, other than for entertainment value or if you if you're fact-checking them, um, political voices who are notoriously inaccurate or deliberately lying. I mean, just as an example, just as an example, yesterday, a Republican Congress person um, was it? No, I'm sorry. I have my date wrong. I want to be accurate. It was not. It was not yesterday. It was a few days ago that uh, Katie Porter was accused of advocating for pedophilia, and the person who said that about her um, has tens of thousands of followers, and he tweeted that she was advocating for pedophilia. And seemed to think that nobody would bother to actually have the tape since this was said on the record in Congress and didn't bother to even try to cover his tracks. Whereas what she said is LGBTQ people are falsely being smeared as groomers and pedophiles. And that's not true. But this is the kind of conversation where you need to, to to do not just opposition research, but research on the people who are actually already representing you and aren't necessarily even running for anything at the moment. And I'm not even sure, I, I will tell you a story from my own experience now. Um, have you had a friend go down uh, the right wing rabbit hole at all? Have you Have you had this experience? Because if you have then you have experienced what I'm about to describe for you. A supply of emails from sources 
where each one feels more dubious than the one before. Where you 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 get somebody sending you stuff saying, you know, you you need to see this. This will change your mind. And you and you click on the thing. I mean, sometimes you don't even want to click on the thing because you think I've, you know, I've got to clean the cat's litter box and that's more important right now than reading whatever's here. But you do, you do, you look at the thing that's been sent to you and it's from somebody that with just a few moments of investigation, you can find out is disbarred, defrocked, uh, unlicensed, or had, had his or her license removed, is pilfering some crystal faith amethyst cure for smallpox. I mean, it's not that hard. And yet, and yet you're going to get like 10 of these from your girlfriend who now believes that she can cure smallpox with a amethyst crystal. You're going to be getting not just one, but 20 of them a day from her. You're going to be getting, you're going to be getting emails from people who believe that playing my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. It will, will cure your spinal distress. You will get, it's, there's no end to it. Absolutely no end to it. And for a while, and, and if you're just joining us and you're wondering why I'm saying this, we, we talked oppo research on the uh, Santos congressperson. Like, how hard would it have been to find out? The most surprising thing we discovered during our interview with someone who actually runs an oppo research company was that, that there was already a nearly 90-page dossier on him that apparently didn't get used. Maybe the reason is they just didn't think anybody would believe it. Maybe the claims were so false and outrageous, like my friend who's sending me, you know, amethyst crystals cure smallpox emails. Maybe, maybe they just thought that no one will buy this guy at all. He's so outrageous. If you have one of those people in your life, go ahead and let me know. 773-763-WCPT. Please don't text while you're, okay. Pull over, text, then pull back on the road. I like your texts. They're fun. They're lots of fun. Uh, Let's go to, where did it go? I'm trying to find this text. It's eluding me. I have runaway texts. I can't read fast enough. That's my problem. I'm going to give up. I'm I'm going to push this off on Paul. I'm going to make Paul respond to the texts because I I hi up hi up hey anybody go say hello me? Do you remember what cartoon that came from? No, I can't say. Oh I do. my gosh, that was I believe that was the uh, dog racers, the speed ra- the speed racer dogs. What were they called? It wasn't speed racer because speed racer had that that mouth that didn't move. There were these racing dogs, and there was a poodle who was perpetually tied to the train tracks. And she would go, hi up, hi up. Ain't anybody going to say hello me? And I, I Not felt... The, I, uh, what was it? Underdog? He was always rescuing. That was Sweet Polly Purebred. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But I don't know if she's, it's not the same as the racing dog. Somebody needs to help me because it's going to drive me crazy until I wake up at three in the morning and it comes to me then. 
What were those racing dogs on Sunday morning cartoons? I guess I should have been in a house of worship and then it wouldn't have been a problem for me. I wouldn't have that stuck in my brain right now as I do. So what, what era are you talking about? With the older cartoons? than you, darling, okay, okay. much older okay, than you. Okay. I don't, I don't want to, do I have to say, can't we just say my opposition research says that I don't have to tell you that unless I run for something. I, I didn't know. Cause there's newer racing dogs and I, and I didn't know if you're referring to like Muttley and, uh, Dick Dastardly. No, that the. Yeah. Ooh, wait. No, that Muttley was the dog that is always like. <laughs> oh, very good. You do that. Do that. <laughs> I'm gonna have you keep doing that until you pass out from hyperventilation. I wonder if the person who voiced that passed out from hyperventilation. <laughs> that would be Don Messick that voiced him. I didn't realize you were such an authority on this. Stuff. I have a computer in front of me, but but I am familiar with the world of Hanna Barbera cartoons. Okay, I believe well, Don Messick also did like Scooby Doo. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. The but I think Casey Kasem did. He was Shaggy. Shaggy. Yes, yeah. he was big. So back to the important things of the world, like the January sixth hearing. <laughs> Uh, have you been making your way? Did you get that for Christmas, by the way? Do you want it for your new year? Are you going to read it? It, I believe, is going to be a bestseller. Fun facts. Things were lit on fire. Another batch of transcripts shows that the then White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, burned documents during the transition period. That's according to my personal Shiro of the hearings. She's not my Shiro of all time, but of the hearings. Uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, she was the literally the angel in white who showed up and was shocked and disappointed that this was now her America. Is it just me or do you think to yourself, I'm surprised that we're surprised. If I'd done what they did I'd have had a barbecue at my house every weekend and lit the entire thing with documents from my time. And the way I would have started, what were they keeping them for in the first place? Again, it circles back to the Sam Bankman Freed alleged fraud. If you know that what you're doing is illegal, why wait until you, I never understand why these people wait until they're just about caught. Why? You know what you're doing is a is a mess, an unholy mess. Start cleaning it up now. Start burning things immediately. Stuff them in your brazier and get them out of the White House. Um, if you wear a brazier, stuff them in something else if you prefer. I don't discriminate. I'm just just saying that that's what I would do. Take the USB stick, stuff it in my brassiere, get it out of the White House. And likewise, if you know that you're working for people who are likely to be in trouble. And I don't understand why people aren't more aware of what can. That's what it is. They're not aware of what can go wrong. Maybe we're just not raising our children correctly when we say, sweetheart, the world is open to you. You're going to be anything you want. You can do anything you want without also saying, Of course, sweetheart, a whole lot can go terribly, terribly wrong. I think as a parent, you do your kid a disservice if you don't say, you know, if you're doing something where you really know you're doing something, first of all, don't do it. And second of all, if the people around you are doing it and you can't get out of it, then just plan for the conflagration that will happen. 
plan for the crash. If you get on a plane and you know that plane's not crashing. Still, you sit through that safety dance. Yes, you do. And the plane has to do it. If you're willing to give a flight attendant 10 minutes of your time to show you a life vest that you know is absolutely good for absolutely nothing because you'll never have a chance to use it. Then why, for Pete's sakes, if you work at a company or a political firm or an airline or a radio station where stuff is being done that shouldn't be done, why wouldn't you build yourself one of those little reach under your seat and grab a life vest things? I don't understand it. Possibly I never will. Patty Vasquez coming up in moments. Thank you all for being with me. It is Joan Esposito's show. I can't say when or even if I'll be back, but I'm smuggling a bunch of USB sticks out in my brassiere just in case. Have a lovely New Year's and a great 2023. It's been so much fun.